Hello and welcome to Talking in Tongues. Today is part of our discussion on a broader, deeper spirituality that we're focusing on this month. We're going to be talking with Bishop Tommy Reed. Pastor Reed is the Bishop Emeritus at the Tabernacle at Orchard Park in Buffalo, New York. And in addition to his ministry in Buffalo, he's also ministered and pastored in the Philippines, South Korea, and across the United States. Jared, I know you had a chance to sit down and talk with him a couple of weeks ago. Why don't you share a little bit more about his story and how you got connected with Bishop Reed? Yeah, so Bishop Reed's been a hero of mine, and I'm grateful to say not only a hero, but a mentor and a friend since I was about 16 years old. So just an amazing person, as you mentioned, his experience in Korea and in the Philippines, um, being on staff at some of the literally the largest church in the world. Uh, very interesting story. We don't cover this in the um, interview, but Dr. Yonggi Cho, who pastors the Full Gospel Church in South Korea, now the largest church in the world. When Pastor Reed was in his early 20s, he was in South Korea with his father. And over uh, a lunch together, he looked at uh, at that time, just this young pastor and prophesied to him that he would one day pastor the largest church in the world. Just unbelievable. You know, fast so forward cool. years later and the church, I believe, is near a half a million people, which is hard to even fathom. But I encourage people to uh, just Google a picture of it and to see that church. But that's the sort of thing that Pastor Reed his whole life has been full of these incredible, miraculous moments. You know, he's near 90 years old. He's one of the last people that is a part of what is called the voice of healing, which was a, a time in Pentecostal history back in the 40s and 50s, where some of these uh, healing evangelists, it was kind of an unusual time. Pastor Reed is kind of like one of the last people that, that really experienced from an insider view what happened. Later on in his life, though, when he was pastoring in, in Orchard Park, of which he's now the emeritus uh, pastor and bishop there, he had a, a, an incredible thing happen. There was a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting that just exploded in Buffalo. And uh, he was against it at first, kind of showed up to more spy on them. And God really changed his heart. And through a series of events, the Catholic priest was actually ousted from the Catholic Church he baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through immersion. And uh, that priest was defrocked and kicked out of the Catholic Church. And overnight, the tabernacle grew by about 500 people, which is just unbelievable. Wow. All of the Catholics just kind of landing at the tabernacle. And so he's just this incredible spiritual giant. And what I value about him most, and I think you'll hear it come through on the interview, is the fact of how, uh, how eclectic he is. In, in his spirituality and that he really values both God's work in people that are different than him, as well as values them as people, regardless of even in some sense what they hold to on the surface, he's treating the person as he says as legitimate and being able to accept them as a person first, rather than trying to get into some sort of debate on the outset. So he's an absolute hero. His friendships run far and wide through pretty much every theological stream of every political party. And yet here's this 89-year-old man, almost 90, still investing in people and willing to sit down with me to talk about a broader, deeper Christian spirituality. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's a, a little bit from our time together.
Yeah. Well, Pastor Reed, I really am so grateful to sit down with you. Um, somebody once asked me who's on your Mount Rushmore of <laughs> spiritual giants that people have influenced you, and you're one of the one of the faces on my my Mount Rushmore. And I know I get the opportunity to speak to you quite often, but I know so many other people that'll listen to this podcast. This is going to be just yeah. such a such a treat to. I might to say in. something controversial, so you'll have to forgive me. Okay? <laughs> well, that's maybe why I want you on here. Yeah. Well, Pastor Reed, I know you are one of the most ecumenically minded people I know. Um, when I look at the people that look to you for their spiritual as a spiritual influence, I think of someone like Ed Stetzer, who looks at the tabernacle and some of the the events that you hosted back in the days, all yeah. the way to someone like Bill Johnson and. Everyone in between, so many different people. I'm curious, why do you think God's used you in that way? And why have you been so open to the larger body of Christ? (laughs) I don't know that I have an answer for that, uh, uh, except to say that uh, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. It's all the body of Christ. Uh, So I may not totally agree with whatever or whoever but they're my family so number one I have to understand what they believe to know whether I agree with it or not number two I have to embrace it as a friend do I embrace it as a theology I embrace it as a possibility it's I embrace it as legitimate as legitimate as what I believe uh, but I have to throw out the idea of division, that we're not divided because of a difference. Mm. And I know from this, one of the most amazing things in your story, and I know I'm jumping way yeah. ahead, you know, you were in the Philippines and Korea. Yeah. In Buffalo, though, you have this amazing thing. It's in your book, Exploding Church. I read it years ago and was just mesmerized by what God did. It was kind of overnight yeah. the church literally exploded it and it and it came out of a, a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting. Is that yeah. right? Could you share a little bit about that well, season? I had fought uh, what I thought was a false Pentecost in the city. It took place in the basement of the Basilica in Buffalo under Father Jerry Walters and I felt it was a false Pentecost and I had preached that on a Sunday night and uh, within a matter of hours, God got a hold of me and he said three things to me. Uh, but among the things he said to me uh, was very specific. This is my body. Hmm. And you're criticizing my body. You can't do that. It is illegitimate. And I said, well, what do I do with people that disagree with me? And uh it was like, that doesn't really matter. And all of a sudden, the necessity for my theology, lining up your theology, did not become important. The importance was my acceptance of what you believe is genuine. And I believe that. I believe my Catholic brother who came to live with me, you know, the Catholic priest mm-hmm. came to live with me. Within uh, it, Between the time that God said that to me and the time when the Catholic priest came to live in my house was less than seven days. Oh my goodness. I, and I was faced with the fact that every morning he would get up and go to Mass. I believe in Mass. I thought it was wrong theology. Uh, 
And so the fact that I became acquainted with the man made me embrace the man as legitimate and his theology as legitimate. Hmm. And I know what happens, you have from this Catholic charismatic prayer meeting, yeah. something, for some reason, it's shut down by the Catholic Church. What happens there? Why well, do they kind of land at the tabernacle? When I ended up in that Catholic charismatic prayer meeting, I went over one night, there was about 500 people there, and we only had about 200 in our church, and I, you know, my my attitude was, God, why did you show up here? They've got wrong theology. Why did you show up the place where they had good theology? The Lord didn't answer that question. Uh, but uh, when I walked into that place, I was at home. I wasn't necessarily at home with the theology. I was at home with the people of the theology. I had to embrace them. And that, that took a whole different perspective on the church to me. Yeah. <clears throat> And then, you know, out of this, from what I understand, a lot of, uh, after the priest moves in with you, and so many of these uh, Catholic believers, you begin to attend the tabernacle. How did you pastor that? I mean, you're taking a classical Pentecostal church, a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting full of, you know, spiritual vibrancy, and then throw them all in one room together. How did, how did that, how did that work out? I kind of got the attitude, well, uh, we have the theology for Pentecostalism and for supernaturalism. I don't know what their theology is, but we don't really practice our theology. They practice our theology. So because I met God there, I don't know. I, it just was all right. Uh, I don't think I changed my theology. I, I never challenged that at all. Uh, did it become important to me? I had an importance. I, they had a theology for the supernatural. In fact, they, they had a first century theology of the supernatural. Right. Maybe their theology was better than mine. Wow. Now, one of the things that you said to me, probably one of the most impactful lines just in helping me frame my Pentecostal spirituality was, Jared, you said Pentecostals have more in common with Catholics than they do with Baptists. And oh, I think so, because we come out of, of evangelicalism, and thus we come out of the Reformation. Uh, they come out of the first century. So when you really examine what they believe, except for a few things that we might disagree with, they have a much better theology of the supernatural and what the church is than we do. Yeah, that, that so arrested my mind, con considering the idea that as Pentecostals, we gather around a shared presence. Yeah. And I remember you said we locate that often in kind of the altar time prayer yeah. ministry where Catholics locate that in, in the Eucharist. Yeah. Whereas in often Baptists or some of the other Reformed traditions tend to gather around a shared doctrine rather than a shared presence, which I think is just such an interesting thing. And I know, you know, at the Tabernacle, you've been doing communion weekly for 50 plus years, yeah. every week, which is every week, yeah. it just so abnormal for in a fact, Pentecostal I, church. In fact, I am frustrated that we don't do it in every service. Because mm. I think we should do it when we gather. 
Yeah. And I, I wasn't about to try to upset the whole Protestant church by doing that. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what I would prefer. Let's talk about communion a little bit, because I know when you celebrate and when you're kind of uh, you know, administrating it on behalf of the congregation, you use some really unique language around that. Can you talk a little bit about your view of the Lord's table and and why why do you say something like we should celebrate it weekly? Because I think we come together to meet the Christ and he is in the elements. Now, I don't know if Pentecostals believe that. I believe that. Uh because they are so central to our theology. Uh, you know, Smith Wigglesworth took communion every day of his life. Hmm. He carried the communion set with him, and he, you, you could not bring a newspaper into his house. He would say to my friend Lester Sumrall, leave it outside. We don't bring a newspaper in this house. But there was a communion set there. We celebrated his body and blood and, and, and I, I think my spiritual father, Lester Sumrall, taught me that. I don't know that he had a theology of that, but he certainly had a theology from practice. There is in the elements the presence of God and prescribed in the scripture. So why wouldn't we use it? Hmm. Yeah, talk about that just a little bit further because I know sometimes the Pentecostal tradition looks at things as just a memory yeah. But I know you talk about it just a type as a participation, a fellowship of sorts with that, you know, even prior to the recording, talking a little bit about this and saying, you know, this isn't transubstantiation, but you do believe that spiritually the presence of Christ is there in a unique way. Well, it becomes the body and blood of Christ by faith. I, I don't I think arguing over whether it becomes literal blood and literal body. I don't think that's true. But it doesn't matter whether I do or not. It becomes the body and blood of Christ, whatever that means, in a deeper and more substantial way than as if it really became real body and real blood. Wow. It becomes his body and blood. Uh, therefore, I'm very cautious about what I do with leftover communion. I don't think the people at church, are, they, they just throw in the wastebasket. Uh, but I'm very cautious with that. I'm very cautious in what happens to it in the glass afterwards. Mm. Usually I try to make sure that there's no more in the glass that I can drink and that I drink it all. Mm -hmm. So there's none thrown out. Yeah. What did you grow up believing about the end times? And then when did that well, big I, change happen for you? I grew up believing what they preached to me. Uh, what I remember uh, was it was going to be a rapture. And I didn't know what I was ready for it. So... I had to go to church every Sunday night, get saved again, because the rapture might take place. Uh, I came to the point where I realized that kind of fear is not what God intended. Uh, do I believe in the rapture? Yeah, I believe that he's physically coming back. Do I believe there's going to be a seven-year tribulation? I don't know. I don't know whether it's seven minutes or seven years. I know we have to go up and have to come back down. I understand that. <laughs> but I think to make so much theology that has to do with uh, this idea of the clock, hmm. 
is so wrong. It goes beyond the clock. How he's going to do that, I have no idea. I marvel at it. I, 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 it, I think it's so sacred. I, I can't hardly talk about it because I can't imagine how it happens that we go up to meet him in the air and come back down with him. Who are we? Uh, I've come to believe that what happens at that moment, the saints in Christ go up and get their resurrection body and come back down. Mm -hmm. But what in the world is that about? It goes beyond me. It is a mystery. So much of it's mystery that we, you know, to try to define it in language or define it in, in what we think becomes beyond us. Hmm. But it, one of the greatest miracles of the age will be how in the world God does that. Hmm. Uh, that uh, it's far beyond what I can understand. And I'm glad it is. <laughs> Me too. I, I see over on your bookshelf, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright on yeah. the literal resurrection. And he does such a masterful job. I know in reading that book that opened my eyes to what you're talking about is, you know, we yes, we're going up to meet the Lord, but we're yeah. coming back. Yeah. That there's a resurrection. What are your thoughts on why are people maybe hesitant towards that, that idea of the, the kingdom of God actually being established on well, the earth. Well, could you ask me a return. question, which I didn't answer, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not sure how I got a, I got into this thing about the kingdom. I remember I sat down with Judge and Cornwall and Averna Tompkins one day, and I said to them, I have been overwhelmed with this idea of the kingdom. I don't know why. Uh, the presentness of the kingdom, that the king is here, and therefore his kingdom is here. And I'm not sure what that means. I know it has to affect everything I believe about culture, about how I relate to the culture around me, how I relate to the government around me. Uh, what is government? Uh, he is the king. How do I relate to all that? And uh, so I sat down with them one day, I think it was at Howard Johnson's, and they said to me, you've got to come to our church. Well, at that point, they were going to uh, the church in Atlanta that later became the Cathedral of the Holy Spirit. And uh, they had gone there because of their belief in the kingdom. So now I had a, they said, you've got to go with us. So I went down and preached there. And now I'm sitting with three people who believe in something called the kingdom, which I guess I always believed in, but I didn't understand. Uh and I became overwhelmed by this, 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 this understanding that he is the king. And I can't understand Jesus without understanding his kingship, his lordship, that he is the sovereign over this universe. Uh, you know, what do we do with a pandemic? What do we do with a, all the stuff that's going on in our culture today? Unless we understand that over this he rules. That's not him doing that, but he is the ruler over that and it will be taken care of. Hmm. Uh, so the sovereignty of God is something I don't understand, but I had to be exposed to it because of my belief in the kingdom. Yeah. Now, this might be pressing a little bit. You said you might say something controversial. I'm curious, you know, you have such a long scope of 
leadership in the body of Christ. Over the last few years, politics have become incredibly divisive, both sides of the aisle. And it seems like Christians are often playing tug of war, kind of caught right in the middle of that sort of thing. What would you want to say to the church amidst all of this back and forth kind of political divide, people choosing to side with one party, demonizing the other? What do you think Jesus and what you're talking about, the kingship of Jesus, speaks into that that thing? Oh, I... Well... That's a huge question. I, I, I don't know that I know the answer to the question. Uh, I think about the answer all the time. I'm not sure I know the answer. All I know that Christ is king. But if we try to make him king over what we think, he's not... Is he in my thoughts? Am I right? Am I wrong? If I'm extreme right, if I'm extreme left... Uh, you know, I, a lot of my friends are black. They are Democrats. A lot of my friends are white and they are Republicans. And they really think very differently. Hmm. Uh, but where is God in all this? He's not on one side or the other. Jesus was very explicit that he didn't get into the political area of this. He was king over that. And I don't know what that means. I know that means I have to love. I have to love the people, my black friends, who are very Democrat. Uh, I have to love the people where I came from who are very Republican and very right-wing. And I have a harder time with them uh, because I understand them. I was one of them. And who am I now? I'm neither. I... Mm -hmm. I believe Jesus is bigger than all that. Does that make any sense? I, 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 I wish we could shout that from the rooftops. I think of Joshua going into the promised land and he encounters the angel of the Lord. And he says, whose side are you on? And he doesn't get a response. He just tells Joshua, take off your shoes. And when I look at what's going on, I'm, I'm not trying to just say we don't need to be involved in politics. I think there's true engagement. Well, I think we should be involved in what's right. Yeah. I think we should not be involved in the negativity of it. Though. Right. Yeah, getting getting thrown into this partisanship where you endorse one side and in, in doing so demonize the other. I just think as Christians, we're supposed to operate from that holy ground of God's not taking sides here. He's taking over. And that's uh, such a radically different thing. Although that doesn't sound all that controversial in a room, just the two of us talking, a lot of people find that quite controversial to, to say that Jesus doesn't take a side. Well, I think it's very controversial to my friends who are extreme right and are always fighting the battle or extreme left and are always fighting the battle. Uh, I guess I get back to the fact, Jared, that I have to, first of all, ask what Jesus would do. Because I don't think he'd be on either side. I really don't. Uh, number two, what would I do if I were like Christ? Uh, 
I have some things I believe. I'm kind of conservative in my belief system. But my closest friends are, are liberals. Most of my friends are liberals. And that's not because I associate with liberals. It's just because those people God put me in contact with. Mm. And I accept them as they are. That doesn't mean that I'm a liberal, because I'm not a liberal. Uh, I'm pretty conservative. But I'm certainly not conservative in a political sense that I am uh, very against the other side and God is a, God is a conservative. Hmm. I don't know who God is. Uh, <laughs> I think... He's conservative in the fact that he doesn't believe in abortion. He's conservative in the fact that he believes in life. I think he's conservative in the fact that he has a view of the financial world that I think would probably be on the conservative side. But I'm not sure about that because he also would take care of the poor. Mm. Uh, it's a bigger question than I can answer. And so I don't have an answer. Now, I'll take this out of the recording if we need to. But I know one of the churches at one time that you planted, it, you weren't pastoring it, but sent out some uh, some people. And they really went down kind of the right-wing anti-abortion uh, yeah. path. And yeah. I, I know it ended pretty poorly. It did. We can, we can edit this if we need to, but I'm curious of, you know, during that time, what, how did you try to pastor them? Because I know that you, you tried to caution them. and, and Well, I said to, to one of them one day, you know I'm pro-life. I'm very pro. I'm as pro-life as you are. I'm as anti-abortion as you are. Uh, however, if you keep going the direction that you're going, one of your disciples will kill an abortion doctor. That's exactly what happened in our city. Wow. The abortion doctor had an office and outside of his office was, was where they held all the pro-life rallies. So all, the, all this anti-abortion stuff was going on in front of his office. And he died. I, did they kill him? No, they didn't kill. Well, somebody, one of them did. Uh, I think it's dangerous to become so so fighting mad. Jesus didn't do that. Now, I'm not, in no way am I saying let's compromise. I'm not saying that. I think I can be like that and be as conservative in my view about abortion mm -hmm. as anyone else around me. But I can't be angry because anger is going to get me into, into a place I don't want to go. Mm. Does that make any sense? A hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, I see this kind of instant rush to take sides and... I recognize, you know, we have to work within the economies that are, you know, there is decisions that have to be made and there are real consequences with them. But I think in terms of the kingdom of God as the great 
inbreaking of the eschaton where his kingdom comes his will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven and i think that that has to transcend these categories and that jesus even jesus resists the temptation to become king yeah when they try to make him here become king or when they uh, even satan in the desert tempting him to here's the kingdoms of this world and and yet we see the nonviolent choice of Jesus that he's not going to rule over or lower lord over like the gentiles but that he's going to somehow come in this other way and it it does i think it asks more questions than it provides answers but i don't know how to be faithful to christ in this understanding like you said of the the kingship of Jesus and somehow try to bring it about in my own effort or i like the way that you're saying it anger because i think that that really is undergirding so much of the discourse that's taking place which is even what jesus had the yeah. biggest problem with uh people used to ask me uh, because i had a lot of friends and some of my friends were somewhat controversial and uh, someone said to me one day uh, several people did of all the christian leaders that you know who do you respect the most and i have some some pretty big people that that I knew that I worked with I was on their committees I I helped them raise money and I was was with them I said I I think the man I respected most was Robert Schuler well instantly among the fundamentalists I got well does he believe this does he believe that and I said I don't know uh, we never talked about that uh, I know he loves Jesus. But my criteria for judging people is not whether they are right wing or left wing. It is whether they embrace the Christ. And if he embraces the Christ, then I have to listen. I have to, I have to embrace. I have to break bread with him. Then what do I do with that? Maybe I discover somebody that's a better Christian than I am. In some ways, I did. Uh, but I think it has more to do with character than it does with, am I really fighting the abortion issue? Uh, I'm not sure the people that fight issues I have to be careful how I say that because I think we should fight issues. I understand that. But we can't do it with anger. Hmm. And, and if we do, we're going to be non-Christ-like. So, so good. I'm going to change gears here. You have a amazing, you're still living an amazing life. It's not lived in the past and, tense. I was thinking about it. And I will be it. 90 years old this year. Yeah, you just have uh, continued to live an amazing life. And I'm curious, kind of a couple rapid fire in the sense of what is the most unexaggerated miracle that you saw with your own eyes? I think my own life. Uh, I don't remember it exactly. But I know I had polio and I was crippled. And the fact that I was able to walk it took place in my own life. 
I think the greatest miracle I ever saw was my dad's salvation. Uh, the most unlikely person to find Christ. And yet, when he found Christ, you know, my dad was an Irishman. They said he could beat up anybody in any bar in the city of Buffalo. He was, and he was a professional fighter, a professional football player. But he had, he was a pugilist that just could do anything. He, he, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to get around him. And But when he became a Christian, he became a lover of people. And you didn't know him, did you? Mm-mm. No, he, uh, tears were, were his calling card. Mm. You, you could not be around him without, if you mention the name of Jesus, he'd break out crying. He became totally the opposite of who he had been in the world by becoming this lover of people. He didn't understand the fights. He really didn't understand the fights. It didn't. Uh, he understood that you needed to be against abortion. You needed to be against this. You needed to be against that. He understood that, but he didn't understand taking non-Christian methodology to fight God's battles. And I think that influenced me. Uh, I don't really understand that world. I I mean, I have a lot of friends in the political world. I I don't say to them what, we we don't talk about the controversial issues because I'm going to love them either way. Hmm. If we talk about them, I will tell them I, I think I have much better chance of converting them to my side because I care for them. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely. What would you say is the strength of the Pentecostal tradition in its, in its best light when you think of Pentecostalism? What do you think its greatest strength is? I think its greatest strength was its desire to return to first century Christianity. Hmm. Uh, I think that's what they wanted. I don't know that they did that, but they wanted to be first century Christians, whatever that meant to them. So they wanted to believe in the supernatural. They wanted to believe in speaking in tongues because that was first century to them. They wanted to embrace whoever that was they wanted to be. I think that was their... Uh, in my estimation, and knowing all the, you know, I grew up in a home where my parents were friends with the founders. Wesley and Ruth Spielberg. Ruth Spielberg's father was the pastor of Azusa Street. Uh, uh, Ralph Riggs, uh, the, 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 the greats of that generation, that some of them were children at the altars of Azusa Street. Some of them the stories of them sleeping on the floor and uh, the people that were there were my parents' spiritual mentors. That's partly because of my age. But they were a great breed of people. Hmm. Um, but I don't remember them being uh, people that had a theology of we're right and you're wrong but people who embraced what the church was in the first century, that, that, that was their desire. 
Amazing. What, on the flip side of that, what do you think is the weakness of Pentecostalism or maybe a blind spot that tends to plague? I think our blind spot is we try to become fundamentalist. Uh, if we do that, we're going to blow away everything we got. Hmm. I don't know that. Because so many of them have. They become fundamentalists in not what they believe, but how they believe it. Hmm. And uh, uh, I don't want my theology to be flexible. I want it to be open to what the church was, how we were created, who we were. Uh, I'm not sure I found that. Uh, I hope I have. Hmm. What gives you hope when you are in prayer or witnessing where the church is at? What, what gives you a sense of, of hope? Maybe not necessarily in this moment, but as you look out into the horizon, what are some of the things that you're able to, from your perspective, see that God has done or is doing and gives you hope toward the future? Uh, I don't know whether I'm going to be agree with myself. I think one thing that gives me hope is is the raw desire for people like a, a Bonke or a, you know the healing evangelists to be first century. Hmm. We can reach a whole nation. If we can stand up and see this, I think that's what the early disciples did. I think they wanted to become first century. I think the hope of Pentecostalism is that. It it also can be our greatest detriment in that we try to uh, to create it ourselves or make it look like that. Mm. And so we have healing lines and we have all kinds of stuff. Because we want to demonstrate the miracles of God. I don't think that's totally bad, but it can become uh, it be, can become a rock that will trip us. Yeah, mm, I find that really insightful. When you think about Pentecostalism and relating to some of these other traditions, I know you, of course, had the Catholic Church come right into your church. Who are some of the other influences that you've found in your life from outside of the traditions whether they're in the past or they were people that you knew what type of different denominations and what did you glean from them that you you couldn't have couldn't have gotten if you would have stayed in kind of your own silo that's a bigger question than i think i can answer uh I do think the biggest thing that influenced me, and I use the name again, was my friendship with Robert Schuller. But it wasn't what he believed. Uh, it was the person. It was the breed of Christianity that he showed me. Uh, he didn't know what it was to talk badly about somebody. Hmm. Uh, I remember him 
we were in Atlanta in an old farmhouse and there were some of the leading pastors in America not from my communion but the denominational pastors uh, I think D. James Kennedy was there and pastor of the largest Methodist church and pastor of the largest Baptist church in America I remember him sitting there rocking in that chair and and he just said, let's sing. And he began to articulate those words about the Holy Spirit coming. Fill me now. And saying those words, inviting the Holy Spirit into his heart. And I thought, he does that better than we do it. Uh, I I don't think we articulate or believe the love part of it. Mm. I don't know that I do. I'm certainly not making a confession that I do. Uh, I mean, who can uh, duplicate the love of Christ? I don't know. So I hope you enjoyed listening in on that conversation as much as I did. Bethany, what stuck out to you? I think for me, the thing that I've been thinking about ever since I heard the, the discussion that you had with him was when you asked him how he blended those congregations when he had Catholics arriving at his church. And, and you said, you know, obviously you view communion a little bit differently. So, so what did you do with that? How did you do communion together, even though you viewed the communion table as slightly differently? And I love his response back to you, which was basically, how could I not? How, how could we not share in the Lord's Supper together? And I think that was so profound, especially in a time when it feels like everything is so polarized, whether it's political, um, denominational, churches, our ideology, our theology, it feels so easy to separate and, and to draw those lines based on, on what we believe or how we, how we feel things should be done. And the, the audacity of standing in the gap and saying, how could I not? How could I, how could I look at these differences and allow them to make it so that I couldn't come to the Lord's table with, with people who are seeking after God as well. And I just thought it was so profound. I've been thinking about that ever since. Um, and, and just how that attitude has marked his life and his ministry, his friendships, the way that he's, um, the way that he's approached life. And I think, I think we could learn a lot from, from that perspective. It's so good. Well, thanks for tuning in to Talking in Tongues. Today's hosts, Jared Ruddy and Bethany Miller. Our guest, Bishop Tommy Reed. Our music, Holy Roller by Kevin Bertram. For more information on this interview and everything that we're working on, check out talkingintongues.org. Thanks so much.